This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. All right, very good afternoon to everyone. It's always a joy and privilege to gather together. Someone mentioned they are very excited that we are finally back in the New Testament, and indeed, we are back in the New Testament, the letter from Paul to Titus. So before we begin, why don't we ask God briefly to just help us to focus on His Word. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this letter from Paul to Titus. We pray right now that your Holy Spirit will engage our minds and our hearts, that we can understand and we can respond and strengthen our hands and our will, that we may live out what your will has for us. We pray all this for your glory, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now once again, welcome back to church, and today we're on the letter to Titus. Now we have recently just had our country's general election, and those of us who vote knows the importance of having leaders we trust will lead us in the right direction. Some of us are already very clear who to vote for, some struggle before they do their votings, but we do know we need leaders who are willing to make tough decisions when needed, even if it risks some popularity votes, and leaders who are willing to refute and correct errors that might endanger the nation. Well, the same, if not more, applies to the Church of Christ that has existed generations after generations after generations in various cultures and geographies. What the leaders teach or not teach directly impact the spiritual diet and so the spiritual direction of the church body. Well, today we're going to begin our new series on Paul's letter to Titus. And in its first chapter, we are dealing with appointing of gospel-shaped leaders who are tasked to teach truths and refute falsehood. So how appropriate it is that we're just one week away from our own annual congregational meeting. And being a Presbyterian church, the members are responsible in voting in the teachers, the elders, and the leaders of the church. So let's begin In fact, let's begin by first painting the context of this letter from the Apostle Paul to his trusted son, Titus. Now, this letter to Titus was probably written in the first century, about mid-60s. Paul had journeyed to the island of Crete and had established new churches there. He couldn't stay long enough in this important but infamous island and he had to leave his most capable gospel partner, Titus, to continue the work of establishing the churches. Now, according to Titus chapter 3, 12, Paul would eventually be heading to Nicopolis, you see it in the map, and Titus would eventually join him there. But in the meantime, Titus, who was left in Crete, was tasked to appoint leaders for the churches in Crete. Now, Crete was the fourth largest island in the Mediterranean. It's easily more than 10 times the size of Singapore and was infamously notorious. There was even a Greek word, kritizo, attributed to the Cretans. To play the Crete, kritizen means to lie. 
many writers of the past would label the Cretans as a race of liars. Their greed, their envy, their rivalry, their contentious character was legendary. One writer even said of the ancient Cretans, on their working days, they were paid mercenaries. On their day off, they took to piracy. They do the same job whether they pay, they're paid or not paid. The Cretans, they also had institutions of mystery cults. And they were very proud of the myths that recount how famous Greek gods like Zeus, Artemis, Apollo, they were born in that land. And so in this infamous land, Paul left Titus to fortify the churches. As we come to this letter, we no doubt need to pay attention to this letter so that we will not cruise into the background of our cultures, but to know what is required of us as God's church. In your handout or right on the screen, we'll be looking at the first chapter of Titus, which I've divided neatly into three parts, namely verses 1 to 4, churches are to be built. Verses 5 to 9, elders, teachers need to be appointed. And verses 10 to 16, false teachings must be refuted. So let's jump right into Titus 1. If you have your Bible, please flip to the first four verses or you can look at the screen if the words are big enough for you. Let me read this for us. Titus 1 verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and which now at his appointed season he has brought to light through the preaching and trusted to me by the command of God our Saviour, to Titus my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. Now the letter begins with this elaborate greeting from Paul and it seemed to be written not just for Titus's reading because Titus knew Paul well, but to be carried along and read publicly to churches. We see that in chapter 315. And it's also meant to affirm Paul's earlier work and Titus's authority for the task ahead. Now in an island full of gods, Paul established that he was the servant of the true God that they have believed in. At the same time, he was appointed an apostle of Jesus Christ, the commission given to Paul by God and by Christ Jesus their Savior were two. Number one is to build the faith of God's elect, that is to build the church. And number two, to build their godliness, to grow the church by teaching them truths. That was what Paul had been doing in Crete, building churches after churches, that is building many gatherings of Christian believers. And by their faith-shaped lives, these churches will have the hope of eternal life. Now, while the Cretans and their local born gods were legendary in their art of deception, the God of Paul was not like them. God, who does not lie, had given the promised hope of eternal life before anything was even born. And this promise was now revealed through Paul's preaching. Dear brothers and sisters, 
Verses 1 to 4 could simply be called Paul's greetings. But in this greeting, we can see clearly that it was the command of God that brought about the churches in Crete. And it would be through the preaching of truths rather than lies that will shape the churches towards godliness and to know personally the hope of eternal life that God had promised. Now, brothers and sisters, if you and I, we just pause and we look back at our church history, our own lives, we'll recognize that churches were always built because servants of God in every generation took the command of God seriously. What had been promised before creation was made impossible by Adam and Eve when they rebelled against God. But God made it possible again through His Son, Jesus Christ, who came to live and die for us. So in the preaching of Christ Jesus, the promise of salvation has been revealed to us. This command given by God was passed down generations after generations after generations that the hope of eternal life continues to be brought to light to you and also to me. And so within churches that have God's truth, we can actually boldly say grace and peace in good days or in pandemic. Grace because God has shown us kindness and put out His loving arms, so to say, towards us. And peace because now we can hold on to God and call Him our Father and call Him our Father into eternity because the weight of sin and death chained to our ankles are now broken and we will no longer be dragged into eternal darkness. So Paul, who had tirelessly traveled around Crete to preach the good news, he now calls his spiritual son Titus. Titus finished the work required. We don't have time to look deep into who Titus was. But if you have used the Coma Bible study and looked through the passages regarding Titus, you have learned these few things about Titus. That Titus had previously been sent on missions by Paul to Dalmatia and also to the churches in Corinth. Titus was assigned the important work of collecting money for Gentile churches to help Jerusalem Christians who were facing drastic famine. Titus he was even earlier made a representative of the uncircumcised Gentiles. And Paul brought Titus to Jerusalem to meet the elders among the Jerusalem church. And right there, Paul and his companion Titus established the gospel that Paul preaches to the Gentiles is true. And also to affirm there is no need for circumcision to be safe. And this will no doubt be important when dealing with deceptive circumcision groups later in verse 10. So now, moving from Paul's greeting that shows churches are to be built, we come to the next step, which is in verses 5 to 9, teaching elders need to be appointed. So look at me to verse 5. I'm going to put it on the screen. It's small, but if you can use your own Bible, you'll be a bigger font. Let me read verse 5. For us, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now, the question is, how would, how would Titus put things in order? The answer is by appointing elders in every town amongst the churches. Churches are made out of people 
you and like you and I who are always work in progress. Paul didn't just preach and then he moved on as if everything will just naturally be all right. He wanted to make sure that the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of truth continues to grow the church in godliness and the hope of eternal life. And so there are two features in this elders. Two features. The first is their character, verses 6 to 8. The second is their function, verse 9. Let's first look at their character followed by their features, their function. Look with me to verse 6. Now an elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless. Now, the elder is called interchangeably as the overseer. He must be blameless. But what does being blameless mean? Well, first of all, blameless does not mean sinless. Blameless is not equals to sinless. Otherwise, the churches will either have no leaders or they will have a bunch of liars as leaders. Because the reality is no one is absolutely sinless except our Lord Jesus Christ. But nevertheless, the elders need to be blameless, meaning how do people perceive their character in public? If their family, their colleagues, their neighbors, their friends, even their enemies are being interviewed, what would they say about their character? And since the church is more like a family than a cooperation or or company, Paul uses the examples of family relationship. Now, (coughs) if the elder has a wife, the question is, is he faithful to her? Is he a a one-woman man. If the elder has young children living under his household, do they believe and behave as believers? Now again, it does not mean an elder must be married or Paul would have trouble and we can't vote next week. The question rather is this, is the elder faithful if he is married? Is he that one woman man? Likewise, it does not mean if one of the adult children of an elder start to confess he or she is not a Christian, that man can no longer stand as an elder. Rather, Paul's point here is whether he is able to lead his children who are still under his roof, his dependent, to know and believe in the truth, that they are not wild and disobedient. When the dad says, children, let us go to church this Sunday, the young children will not defy their father and say, dad, I'd rather stay at home and watch TV and play games. Not interested. And the parents just leave them to be. Now, Paul is not referring to adult children who are independent and will be responsible to themselves, but younger children who are still under the guidance of their parents. It is not the children who leads the parent to decide if they should go to church. Rather, it is the duty of the parents to faithfully guide their children to know God. Why did Paul focus on 
family when he speaks about the elder's character. The reason is actually given in verse 7. Look at it. The reason is because the church is not a company of cooperation. It is a family, a household. If the man is overbearing, he's quick-tempered, he's a drunkard, he's violent, he's dishonest at home, he will likewise in church. Conversely, if he is hospitable in his household, he loves to do what is good, he seeks to be self-controlled, to be upright, he seeks to be holy and disciplined, he loves what is good, and he tells his family to love what is good, he will seek to be the same when he leads God's household. His wife and his children should not see incongruence between his private character and his public persona. For the incongruence will make the gospel repulsive to his children. Now again, it does not mean the elder is sinless and perfect, because an elder may fail at home, just as he will fail and may fail in church. But nevertheless, his direction is shaped by the gospel of truth that has saved him. He is shaped by the gospel for the long haul. And he will call his own family and the family of God, his church, to come along and head towards godliness, just as the truth calls us to. Now, at, at this point, many of us here will say, Andrew, you know what? This has got nothing to do with me. It is about the church elder and we are actually just their judge. But that is not true at all. This passage has everything to do with you and me in at least two ways. And I want us to ponder these two ways. Now, first of all, as we look at the passage on the character, the character of being blameless, being faithful to the spouse, being faithfully guiding the children, not overbearing, not violent, these are not merely for the elders. They are actually for all Christians, as the rest of the Bible will remind us. In fact, Titus chapter 2 and 3 will bring Christian living into focus. These characteristics are not elder-specific. They are gospel-specific. And so it is right for all of us to desire these characteristics more and more. For men here who are listening, who are married, or those of us who are in leadership roles, We should strive even harder for our household are like miniature churches that we take responsibility over. Because back in Crete, we're not talking about church that is the size of 100, 200, 300 people. But rather, they are often more like house churches, perhaps even the size of 20s or 30s, like the size of a few Bible study groups gathered together. Verses 5 to 8 are relevant to us because while it is about appointing elders or leaders, they are not elder-specific. They are gospel-specific. Now, the second relevance for us is that being Presbyterian uh, as a church, all of our members are given the responsibility to elect our church leaders and our teachers. And we do need to take our responsibility seriously. When it comes to the elders, Paul tells Titus to appoint Cretans 
who are not Cretan-like. That is professing Christians who pursue gospel-shaped godliness rather than culturally-shaped worldliness. The same goes for us. We do not elect leaders and teachers by their success in the world, but by their character and their desire to be shaped by the gospel. We are not trying to appoint sinless men or high achievers as elders and teachers, but those who show that they are willing to be blameless when leading God's household, not for their personal gain, but out of obedience for God's command, just as Paul and Titus were doing. Now, the first feature of the elder is the, is the character before moving to the second feature, which is their function. So now look with me to verse 9. Let me read it for us. Verse 9. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. There is a specific function when it comes to choosing the elders or overseers of God's household. And it is for them to teach trustworthy message that they themselves have been convicted of. Like Paul and Titus, the elders or overseers are called to encourage others by sound doctrines and to be brave to refute false teachings. We're not called to elect charismatic leaders who are smooth talkers and who are good at scratching your back and my back. We are actually called to appoint leaders who will be willing to stand on truth, to speak truth in love, and to stand against false teachers. For those of us who are in teaching roles, will we also consider this seriously, willing to stand on the truth and against false teaching? Because here's the reality, Truth leads to godliness, but falsehood will disrupt God's household. We're not appointing extraordinary people to be elder teachers, but Christians who are loyal to the truth and are able to teach the truth. Now with that, let's move on to Paul giving the model of refuting false teachers. And this is the third part of this letter. Look with me to verses 10 to 14 as I read it for us. Titus 1 verse 10. For there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach and that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets has said it. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply, so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. Now in this huge island of Crete, the churches were vulnerable to false teachings mixed with religiosity and myths. Paul's refute sets the example for the future elders to follow. 
Now, what are the characteristics of false teachers? Well, the false teachers in Crete were opposite to the gospel-shaped elders. Look at it with me. Verse 10, it says, They were rebellious, they are insubordinate to God's will and God's word. And by their charismatic Cretan ways, verse 10, they are full of words. They are good at words, but their words were meaningless and deceptive. In fact, amongst them were circumcision group, most likely Jewish Cretans. They were emphasized on religiosity. Verse 14, look at it. They were emphasized Jewish myths and human commands. And in so doing, they will win their places of influence with their words. And in the process, they will disrupt God's household. So Paul, he gave the instructions that the appointed elders, they must refute the false teachers, not giving them the space to teach and disrupt. Quoting Crete's own prophet, Paul said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. And this saying is true. Those influenced by false teachings, they had to be rebuked that they would turn back to sound teachings. Now, dear brothers and sisters, false teachings can be deeply religious. Let me say that again. False teachings can look deeply religious. And I wonder if you have encountered them. There's a wide spectrum of how they can look. False teachers, they could set up great theater of meaningless words, even songs, to evoke emotions. And it will make you feel that if you have them in your gatherings, they will be able to tell you secret knowledge about God. All without the need for godly repentance or holding to God's truth. The false teachers promise knowledge of God while living like Cretans. I wonder if you've heard of such false teachers. Perhaps in our case, they'll be teaching a God whose main purpose is to please you and bless you while you and I can live a compromised life. Or perhaps the false teachers could evoke religiosity with strict dressings and liturgies, long lists of rules, regulations, traditions, even food laws to cover the real demand for godliness and faithfulness to God's truth. I wonder if you have heard of teachings that suggest that the person doing the most in church are the godliest. Let me put a picture there to help us think about this together. One of the ways to work less internally on our godliness, the teachers would help us to think, is to do more externally for others to see. That is absolute false teaching. But such was the case if the churches in Crete, they began to listen to the circumcision group and they start to practice perhaps food laws on what could be eaten and what could not be eaten, what is pure food and what is dirty stuff. And in so doing, they start to increase external religiosity for others to see while reducing the need to listen to God's truth. In fact, Paul warned in verse 15 that false religiosity would not make them pure. 
perhaps using example of food law, Paul says in verse 15, to the pure, everything, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupt and do not believe, nothing is pure. Dear brothers and sisters, let us know that it is true that leads to godliness, not the acts of religiosity by rituals, by means, by legalism, as a cover for the need of godliness. To the teachings of false teachers, Paul says, their mind and their conscience are corrupt. In fact, verse 16, Paul says, they claim to know God because they look very religious. But by their actions, their rebellion, their compromising of God's truth, they actually deny God. Paul says they are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Dear brothers and sisters, this warning against false teachings is as true for the Cretans as it is for us in our own church. The church does not stay strong and faithful by going with cultural flow or by compromising scriptures to make Bible more palatable for a greater audience. That was why Paul, after building churches, calls for the appointing of elder teachers to teach truth that encourage and refute false teachings that corrupts. Because the long-term health for you and I, for our church, depends on ongoing gospel-shaped leaders to teach truths and to be brave to refute falsehood. So as we close our time today, I would just like to invite us to take, have a few takeaways. I'd like to invite us to have a few takeaways. The first is this, that it is right for our church to keep growing our gospel partnership with faithful churches and Bible teachers in other parts of the world so that more churches are established and they will also appoint faithful elder teachers to teach and preserve God's church. We're thankful. I'm thankful when I first came to BTBC a few years back um, to see so many of our church members investing their time, money, prayers, relationship to keep doing what God has commanded, to connect with gospel partners that are not even in our church. And I pray that we will not stop despite the pandemic, that we'll continue to make sure that God's churches are being built around the world and that there will be strong elder teachers to teach. Now, the second takeaway is this. There is a reason why BTPC's membership class always takes so long to complete. Those who have gone through it, you know it takes five months, six months before we finish it. But we do it so that our members are clear about the truths we need to hold on to. That we are more concerned with being shaped by the gospel than trying to look religious in church. We want our members to take responsibility as members of this local church, which would include appointing and then supporting right leaders who are convicted of God's word. And so together, we will strive to live and teach God's truth and to refute falsehood. For some of us who have been at BTBC for some time, but have not yet committed yourself to a local church, can I ask you to consider actually making a choice to do so, to take up the privilege and also the responsibility of being part of a local church to do God's work together. Now lastly, let's think back to the character traits of verses 5 to 8. 
let us be reminded they are not just for the elders, but it is for all of us, which we'll learn more in the next two weeks, in the next two chapters. We are not called to be smooth talkers. We are called to take the truth seriously. So dear brothers and sisters, just as we had our country's general election, and we know the importance of choosing right leaders, may the same goes for our church, that we would prayerfully take up the responsibility to ensure that we have faithful leaders and that the truth that gives salvation and secure the eternal life that we have, that this will be proclaimed. And may we pray for ourselves and our churches that we'll always stay faithful to God's truth and be brave enough to refute false teachings whenever it comes our way. So let's ask God to help us as we close our time of looking into Titus 1. Would you pray together with me? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the letter to Titus, reminding us of your promise of eternal life that is now made known to us. Dear Father, we pray, God, that you will help us to take heed from Paul's letter to Titus, that we will build churches, that we will establish teachers who are shaped by the gospel and who are willing to proclaim truth and that we will refute false teachings because they will disrupt your church and your household. So we pray also, God, you grant us wisdom in the coming week as we elect our leaders for our church and that we will move in the direction of proclaiming truth and standing strong in truth and refuting falsehood when it comes our way. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.